0: This is the Bama podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host Brent Billings. Today we consider the Pharisees reaction to the raising of Lazarus as well as the story of Mary anointing Jesus for burial. I don't know how much we'll
1: have to talk about today, Brent, but uh, we should probably set up today's passage because it comes on the heels of, I mean, your. I don't know what the new NIV says. I know the the, the old NIV, your passage is going to start with the word, therefore, Is that true in the...
0: Therefore, yes. Okay,
1: so we need to talk about uh, what what was the story we just got done talking about in the last episode?
0: Raising of
1: Lazarus. Raising of Lazarus. So that story, I mean, that would be, I mean, that feels
0: like that would be a relatively big
1: deal. It seems to have shaken some people up, and we're going to see that in our passage today. So we're just reminding our listeners where we're at in the narrative. We just heard about that crazy story. I would imagine that would probably... Shake up your worldview, huh,
0: Brent? Yeah, the, the pickup on that is the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. And then our passage today starts, therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him.
1: So they're coming, They're coming. by the way, to sit Shiva with Mary. The The three days have sitting Shiva's those uh, initial seven days after the death, and then a 40-day mourning period. And it's during those seven days. It is on the third day uh, after the person has been deceased. They've been put in the tomb, and you, you go to the tomb, and you sit at the tomb for seven days. In the in second temple judaism you would go sit at the tomb for seven days people would know that they would come and see you there i'm assuming you go home and you rest and sleep and stuff but you're that's where you gather that is your social gathering spot for those seven days on day 3 you roll the stone back and you shout inside the tomb whoever it might be lazarus lazarus you say the name twice and if there's no answer then you close the tomb and that is considered like the official That's the official death pronouncement. I don't know if we have any record. I have been taught and told that the reason they did that is because sometimes people would appear to be dead and actually would not be dead. And they started this practice just to make sure that the deceased was actually deceased. I I don't know how much credibility there is to that idea. That's just what I was taught at one point.
0: I would wonder how much they understand about things like a coma or whatever. Sure,
1: sure. I had a a doctor that when, when we were taught that was standing next to me as we walked away from the site. Said, oh, no, that's, uh, yeah, we have all kinds of records of people, especially in the ancient world, being buried but not being actually dead. And so, uh, you know, yeah, absolutely. It's interesting that Jesus shows up on which day for Lazarus?
0: Uh, The, was it the fourth day?
1: Fourth day. So Jesus shows up the day after. They have already given this. They've already opened the door. They've said, Lazarus, Lazarus, no answer. Shut the tomb. He's dead. Jesus shows up on the fourth day. I don't know if he did that to make a point. However he did that, he, he wants to make sure that Lazarus is dead as far as the teaching part of maybe that miracle, if you want to look at that, look at it that way. But uh, yeah, so they have, let's see, what, what did you just read, Brent? I got so excited. I got sidetracked from whatever it was we just looked at. <laughs> yes, they are coming. They're coming to Seshiva. So all these Jews, or I would, again, to be consistent with that word, I'm going to read Judeans because I think that's going to be very relevant to our passage here today. Those There are many Judeans coming to visit... Uh, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, they're coming to visit her um, because she's in her Shiva period. And it's not going to be till seven days before she's done with that. So they, they were there. They witnessed it. They saw it. And now they find themselves in a little bit of a
0: predicament. Go ahead. Yeah. And this, I mean, they're just, they're in the region of Judea. So it would make sense. Correct. Absolutely. Would, yep. All their friends, all the people they know. In general, most of the crowd is going to be Judeans, even if there's a few extras.
1: Absolutely. They're they're right outside Jerusalem. They're definitely in Judea. We're not in Galilee. Nobody's traveling from Judea. This would make total, complete sense. This is what you would expect to have. This is the group of people that she's a,
0: the community she belongs to, the group of people that would come to support her. Absolutely. So it says many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believe to him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. I love you pulling out that detail there. Many believed, but some didn't know what to do with it. They go to the Pharisees. Okay. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin.
1: Which Sanhedrin? We talked about two different Sanhedrin, Brent. Remind us of the two and which do you think this is probably referring to?
0: Well, so there's formal and there's informal. And uh, my thoughts are already colored because the NET footnotes suggest that it is the informal. Oh,
1: yes. I love you, NET. I love you so much.
0: (laughs) And their basis for that is uh, how Caiaphas, the high priest, is functioning in this meeting compared to what they would expect uh, his function to be in the formal sanhedrin.
1: I love it so much. I, I don't love that you're allowing the NET to color your reading, Brent Billings, before you even have a chance to wrestle with it yourself.
0: I mean, I read the passage <laughs> before I look at the footnotes. I'm just saying, by the time we've recorded this, I have already read those footnotes. So your question It's true. It's true. Uh, does not come on a fresh mind in that way. All right, I appreciate that. Okay, go ahead. But yes, no, I do read. I do read the passage before I go through the footnotes because, first of all, there are so many footnotes. It is unreal. Like you have to pick and choose the good ones to talk about. Well, there's that, but it's also it's not a way to read the Bible. Like you're stopping oh, like point. every yep. three or yep. four words. Like so. Yep. I yep. am I am reading the passage in its entirety yep. without any footnotes first, like and then yes. going back to study. So beautiful. Um, what are we accomplishing? They asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation.
1: Now, it seems like the case they make here seems interesting. Now, before I even get into it and sound like an idiot, do you have any NET footnotes you're gonna talk about?
0: I don't think so though.
1: No. Okay, well, okay. Now when you hear that, it feels to me it feels to me like they have designed this uh, I don't know if I want to call it a case. This statement they're making seems to be tailor made. Because remember, the Pharisees and Sadducees, different ends of the spectrum, two different groups of people, don't work together. And of course, the Sadducees, the chief priests, their concern is going to be about the system that they've created, maintaining that order because they don't want to lose that cozy relationship they have with Rome. The Pharisees, uh, typically speaking— And again, we've talked about this with the Chosen episodes in the past. Like they did a good job of depicting the fact that the Pharisaical camp was not a monolith. You would have had Shammai Pharisees, Hillel Pharisees. You would have had Pharisees that were selfish, and they're just as complex of human beings as we are. So you would have had all kinds of politically motivated. But but generally speaking, the Pharisee camp is going to be much more concerned with doctrinal purity, uh, Pharisaical dogmatics like the, the the walking out of the faith. I don't mean that all critically. I just mean that's going to be their concern. And they seem to have made this argument either one of two things. Either it's tailor-made to provoke the Sadducees to action, the chief priest, this informal Sanhedrin. They've purposely designed this argument to get a certain result. Or they don't align with that typical Pharisaical world. Like they actually – I I don't know if I want to call them corrupt. They have their own political motivations that seem to align with who the chief priests and the Sadducees would be, which would be odd and different. But something there is amiss. Something is odd about that, but I digress.
0: Well, and it's interesting that the people specifically went to the Pharisees, but then it's the chief priests and the Pharisees who get together and start doing all this.
1: Absolutely. It's a wonderful point. Why didn't the people just go to the... Why don't they just go to the Sadducees? Why don't they just go straight to there? It's almost like the people had real doctrinal questions and issues. They they were almost going in a pure sense, a more a more innocent sense, maybe, maybe, to the Pharisees. And it's this group of Pharisees that's like, man, we gotta. This is getting out of hand. People are getting raised from the dead. Like this is gonna, and and they're. Tr- I mean, what the point that they raise is a very valid concern, like. We don't know where this is headed. This is going to disrupt and shake up the status quo. And you know how Rome responds to the status quo. We're approaching Passover, what we call the final week. Uh, Rome is already like really built up about Passover and they're trying to keep the this is not the energy, the public energy here that's being created. This is no good. Their their concern is more than legitimate. It just doesn't seem to me to be a typical pharisaical concern. It's more of a Sadducee-like concern, but that, again, they're, they're not a monolithic group of people, but I just bring that up to wrestle with it because
0: there it is in front of us. And there's nothing in the text to say that the the Pharisees fielded the concern of the people and then went to the chief priests and said, let's get together. I'm assuming what's happening here is there's just a large crowd of people. Some people go to the Pharisees, but there's chief priests right there. They hear the conversation and they say, okay we're going to take the question with you. We're going to get together with the Sanhedrin. Oh, Brent, you're so right. Oh, goodness gracious. I'm so glad
1: you brought that up. No, thank you for that cuz there's I'm a, I was making assumptions. The Pharisees aren't even necessarily the ones talking, are they? The chief priests and the Pharisees call a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing they asked? Is the new NIV any different? Uh, yeah, they. They so it's so we yeah, I totally presumed. Well, Mud on my face. Look at that. <laughs> no, that's that's a great point. This is this is just the Sanhedrin talking. Oh, that's so interesting. That is so... Okay, I, look at me. Man, my goodness. I'm so glad we have Brent Billings with us. Because that makes way more sense. That definitely feels like the kind of Sanhedrin... Man, I'm almost tempted to start our whole recording over, Brent, but that's okay. <laughs> I look like an idiot. Let's do this.
0: Well, yeah. I mean... That's that's the thing. It's like, you read over some of these smaller details so quickly, or you've read them so many times that you don't think about them, and so. I mean and we've always that's been, what been
1: taught. To de- yeah, we always have been taught to demonize the Pharisees. Like we're always like, oh, it's the Pharisees, it's the Pharisees, it's the Pharisees. And even though I have so adamantly kind of like taught to make that forefront on our consciousness, I, I still do it. It's, I mean, obviously, it's right there in front of me. I did it. I did it. My goodness. Unbelievable.
0: Then one of them named Caiaphas. Supporting the identity as the Sadducees. Gosh, (laughs) who who was high priest that year spoke up. You know, nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life.
1: All right. So as John likes to tell the story here, chief priest utters a proph- an unintentional prophecy. What he's saying is, what do you hear him say? The high priest. The high priest, absolutely. Caiaphas. So... What do you hear Caiaphas saying in his mind? What do you think he understands himself to be saying?
0: That is a question that I have been thinking about ever since I read this. What did Caiaphas know and when did he know it? Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Because, well, okay, so my question is about this prophecy thing. Is that like mm-hmm. a tradition? Like you get, uh, so it's a different high priest every year?
1: No, he was just high priest in that year. I have wondered the way John worded it, if there, I'm I'm not, I'm not, excuse me, I'm not aware of a tradition where uh, there was like an annual prophecy or anything like that. I'm not aware of, it is worded in a way you almost like wonder that, but I'm not aware. I'm not aware of that. I've never read that anywhere. And I'm not sure that that is what John is insinuating, but he was historically speaking, as we understand it, Caiaphas was high priest during that time period in that year. He was, and the whole thing was set. The Herodian priesthood was such a mess sometimes we we understand that it's impossible to know who was functioning as high priest at any given point in time, because everybody was put in power for different reasons by different authorities. But I digress.
0: Okay. So he has this prophecy and apparently he sees Jesus as some sort of, I don't know, maybe as like a, a token, like, okay, Rome, we realize that he's kind of making things a little bit messier. You don't, I mean, I don't know. Am I am I projecting that from the portrayal in The Chosen, where uh, where Quintus is is saying, "Hey, I don't I don't like all these crowds. I don't like all this tension. You got to cut it out." Or is that is that something that the Sanhedrin would be concerned with uh, appeasing Rome, making sure that you know there's peace in this land and that they can continue doing what they're doing more or less? Uh, uninhibited by Rome. Well, I mean, it's a it's a good it's a good question
1: and and an, and a good way of seeing it. I, as I read it, I don't think Caiaphas is trying to prophesy. I I I think Caiaphas is just making a logical point. He's telling people like, listen, we got this whole thing about ready to snowball out of control. I don't care who Jesus is; it's much better for one person to die than for the whole Jewish nation to come under Roman oppression. Like, let's just kill this guy rather than risk everyone else getting unjustly treated and oppressed and slaughtered by the romans um and john's point is he didn't even realize what he said like he made this logical selfishly motivated argument and he didn't even realize that what he said was more true than he ever could have imagined like that's how i i read the passage going down
0: yeah (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. Right. Go ahead and give us some more. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village. Is that the new
1: NIV? I'm interrupting you mid-sentence. Did it say the people of Judea? Yeah. And that, oh my goodness gracious, look at that. (laughs) I will never understand why they make some of the decisions they do and not other places. Okay, go ahead. Pick up up at that verse I interrupted you on. Sorry.
0: (laughs) The people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. And NET says, we don't actually know where this place is. Uh, best right. guess, based on I don't know what evidence, is some modern place called et Taibe, uh yep. identified with the ancient Ophrah or Ephron.
1: Yep, which leads just a whole other set of questions. Uh is it that place? And if it is, is there any kind of like biblical is John Is John just including like a random detail about where Jesus went and stayed? Or is he doing it on purpose? Is it supposed to tie to the ancient biblical Orpah? Is it supposed to tie to the biblical image of Ephraim? Even though there wasn't maybe even a place called? Like what is John doing there? I don't have any great insight there, but it is an interesting verse. And I appreciate their footnote. That's good.
0: And it does include, you know, in the text itself that he's going to the wilderness. So he is going, you know, a little bit outside of town, at least. Um, If, if it is the place that the NET suggests, it would be 12 to 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem. Um, Okay. Sure. which would make sense. Uh, Then it goes on when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover. Many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover they kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, what do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him.
1: Okay, so everybody, according to John's telling, there's a there's a public buzz. There's the rumor mill. Everybody's wanting to know, is he going to show up? And yet... The Sanhedrin has put out word, the chief priests anyway, have put out word that if anybody should see him, and yet as the other Gospels tell it, his uh, his showing up in the final week is going to be very, very public, um, which we're going to see in the very next chapter of John as well. But nevertheless, it is interesting to read the tone of how this portion of chapter 11 wraps up.
0: Yeah, and as at the end of this chapter, we kind of like plunge into this uh, slow-mo footage of Jesus's life where we're covering just a handful of days for the rest of uh, most of the rest of the book of John. Um, So I want to go back and look at our timeline real quick. So we have John seven feast of tabernacles. That's going to be in the fall, right? Yep. Then we have John eight. It says when Jesus spoke again, and that's some sort of nebulous amount of time later, then we have John nine. It says, as he went along again, another nebulous of time, nebulous amount of time later. Then we have John 10, uh, then came the feast of, uh, the festival of dedication, which that would be
1: Hanukkah, Hanukkah. So like winter, Yep.
0: yep. Um, later in John 10, it says, then Jesus went back across the Jordan. And then in John 11, it starts now a man named Lazarus was sick. So again, some kind of, you know, unknown amount of time later, John 11, as we just read, Jesus withdrew to Ephraim for some amount of time and then we have when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover so uh we've covered yep. we've covered about 6 months in the past five chapters and then we've got one week for the next what seven chapters eight chapters whatever it is yeah
1: i mean if you go all the way to the end we're going to be covering nine chapters john 21
0: yep right Right after his resurrection, at that point. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Eight eight chapters of his life.
0: Yep. Um. Okay. So I just wanted to like point out. I mean, we we have talked about this. Like the first half of the Book of John is different than the last half of the Book of John. Uh, but just the time frame that we're talking about here. Like, there's been so much conversation, so much dialogue, so much interaction with the crowds, and now, and now we're about to see this all happen over the course of a week.
1: Yeah, I love you. Bringing It might be next episode or the episode after that, we'll end up chatting about those two different books in John. So I really appreciate the setup to that and bringing that back to our awareness as we close up one portion and start to head towards another. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, so, so end of John 11, it was almost time for the Jewish Passover. And then it says at the start of 12, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus's honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus's feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of her perfume. All right. Now the perfume, sorry.
1: Of the perfume. Yep. Uh, Now I'm, I'm going to interject here and just give you my own. Now we're going to also link a sermon I preached recently beginning of this year in the show notes. It's not an amazing video production, but I I probably state things a little bit more eloquently than I'm about to here on this episode, just because it's a sermon. Um, But I, I, and and in that sermon, I'm dealing with this story from a different gospel. So I can't remember if it's Mark or which which gospel I'm, but I'm dealing with a different version of the story. So it will slightly, it'll it'll vary slightly from what we're looking at here in John. But I have to be honest, if I'm in this situation, I just I love to stop right here in the story. And I love to just put myself in the story and ask myself how I'm going to respond. She takes a, a full bottle of nard, breaks the jar. What does it say in John? Does it say she breaks the jar? It uh, says so she poured it on Jesus' feet. And wiped his feet with her hair. In other gospels, she uh, she breaks the jar so that this entire jar of nard... Like, can you imagine... What that what the house smelled like. If you harmonize this with, and I, I don't usually like to harmonize, but if you harmonize it with the other stories and let it tell you that she used the whole bottle, she broke it and used the whole. Can you imagine? If I'm Jesus, I'm irritated. <laughs> I'm and if I'm watching, I I'm I'm again I'm irritated, I'm frustrated, I'm annoyed at somebody's kind of like. Stupid, spontaneous, outlandish, dumb decision. And then there is absolutely a part of me that thinks to myself, you just took this perfume. We're told how much uh, in this story, we're going to be told how much this perfume cost. And I'm going to be self-righteously, and I'm going to say justifiably, frustrated at the waste of what happened i and i know that because recently i visited a church where i was going to give a speaking event walked into their sanctuary they had the big huge uh three screen probably half a million dollars worth of projection technology and 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 my heart immediately went oh this is what we're working with here what could we have done with these decisions um I just know. I know how I'm going to relate to this story. If I'm a character in this story, I know how I respond to this event, Um, which convicts me because—go ahead and read us the next paragraph
0: here. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected, Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief as keeper of the money bag he used to help himself to what was put into it. So
1: dang, I just aligned in my response that I know I would have had with Judas Iscariot of all people. And it's just, I I bring all that up because I just, and you'll hear me preach. If you listen to the sermon, you'll hear me preach about this. This story challenges me to think about all the times that I may miss God in the name of God. Like, I use my self-righteous understanding of what God wants and what God desires and who God is, and I project that into criticism and judgment, and I miss—in the other Gospels, Jesus is going to say, we will tell this woman's story wherever the Gospel is preached. We will tell this woman's story forever and i and i would have missed it that day i would have and jesus doesn't miss it i mean obviously he's jesus but he doesn't miss it he sees something beautiful something different and and i would have and i know i i got this i got this message the other day from a frustrated listener who said um they felt like i give like the liberal progressive voice, a pass on this podcast. But I am very hard. I, I just, I'm very hard on the conservative worldview, which I'm not sure is true. I get as many angry emails from our liberal listeners as I do from our conservative listeners. Um, as long as I'm an equal opportunity offender, I'm, I'm okay with that. Because um, I want to challenge us both. But let this be a challenge to a worldview that I, I typically appreciate, but a worldview that is quick to cancel a worldview that's quick to create a Instagram account that immediately has a bunch of really sharp, spicy, quippy memes to talk about what's obviously wrong with, because I would I would have made that mistake here. I don't know about anybody else that falls into that worldview that can hear my voice, but it would have been very easy to throw stones at this one and be like, oh, that what a waste. There are so many people in need. There are so many hungry folks outside the And Jesus sees it differently. He sees it differently. So let's actually see what Jesus responds to, because I don't think he sees it differently differently, but he does see it differently than I would have in the moment. I would have seen it like Judas, and that disturbs me.
0: Yeah, and and to your point, um, with the connection to to Mark, the statement there where it says, uh, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her— John doesn't say that, but what he does say is that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And the NET footnotes points out that later Ecclesiastes Rabah will say the fragrance of good oil is diffused from the bedroom to the dining hall, but a good Ooh. but a good name is diffused from one end of the world to the other. And so oh, snap. This this would have been later on Ecclesiastes for ba. but yeah. if if this was a saying that was known in the first century, perhaps uh, John was using this to say basically the same thing that is said in Mark, but just in a more, you know, coded way or whatever.
1: Hot dog. That's great, man. What a cool connection. I absolutely am in love with that. I will steal that for my next sermon.
0: <laughs> and Mark, by the way, uh, is not at Lazarus' house. He's at the house of Simon the leper. so that's a fun one to try to... Uh... <laughs> harmonize <laughs> well
1: yeah we, we may have some goodies on that at some point in our discussion but uh-huh. nonetheless.
0: okay so um so yeah so judas asked you know why why didn't we sell this and use it for the poor uh, leave her alone jesus replied it was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial you will always have the poor among you but you will not always have me
1: all right so let's deal with that that's been a, a, an abused statement it's just been abused all the time, like people saying like, well, Jesus acknowledges that you're never going to solve poverty. You're always going to have the poor with you. Why should we even try? Even Jesus says so. That's not at all what Jesus Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy when he says that. Deuteronomy is saying you need to be open-handed. You need to be generous. You need to look out for the alien, the orphan, and the widow because they will always be amongst you. So the call of Deuteronomy is a call to becoming a kind of people. It's not like this Uh, it's not like, well, if there's people that, if there's people that are in need that are around you, then you should, nope, you will always have people around you. You will always have people in need around you and you need to be the kinds of people that see that need and meet those needs. So Jesus is not saying, forget about the poor, they're always here. Jesus is saying, no, caring for the poor is who we're always supposed to be. And I wonder if he looks at Judas with like, and we all know better about you, Judas, but like... Of course, we're always supposed to care for the poor. What she's done is she's caught the holiness of the moment. She's caught the hour, to use John's language. My hour is is upon us. She under, she catches, she sees what, according to all the other chapters of Jesus' teaching, everybody else is missing, including his disciples. But she doesn't miss it. She sees it, and Jesus says, "And and because she sees it, you're going to realize it. Later, so I just a i I don't know how many times I miss what God is doing in the name of what I believe God desires and stands for. I, I don't know how many times I miss God in the name of God. I hope it's not a long list, but i I want to be more more vigilant about making sure that my preconceived notions about God, my theologies, my ideologies. Don't get in the way of me seeing what's going on right in front of me when God shows up and does something different, when the when the circumstances are different than what I assume them to be. So that's one of my challenges here.
0: Go ahead and take us home, Brent. Well, a little footnote, Goody, at the end of that, uh, the way the Greek is constructed, the me is in the emphatic position in this sentence, uh, which they don't really like they don't offer any explanation for why that would be uh, but they're saying the way it's constructed the the me as in Jesus uh you will not always have me that is emphasized in the in the grammar and so i think maybe maybe jesus is saying like hey yes the poor is there but you're focusing on the wrong thing in this moment or something i don't know yeah
1: uh, yeah I, I would absolutely 100% agree with that yep he's saying she sees this moment for what it is as it relates to me and my hour. I am not always going to be here. And he's been saying that about walking in the light and there's only 12 hours of daylight and some of those references may still be coming up in front of us. But this is a a key theme at this point in the gospel for Jesus.
0: Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him, which apparently those plans go nowhere because there is no further mention of this plot to kill Lazarus. But it's also interesting that it says the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, but previously it was the chief priests and Pharisees who made a plan to kill Jesus, but here it only mentions the chief priests. But it says as well, so I don't know what to think about this. <laughs> well, and and the and so okay, we've we've
1: recommended the Jewish Annotated New Testament before, Brent. And when I recommended it, I did so with a qualified tone because I love half of it and I hate half of it. It's not actually my favorite resource at all. However, a ton of people have written me about how useful they've found it. So that's awesome. I'm glad that God has used that resource for so many of you. Here's an example of one of the reasons why I hate the Jewish Annotated New Testament.
0: Um, <laughs> it's, it's footnote it's on the last verse. not where I saw verse. that going, Marty. <laughs>
1: yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. So read that last verse of the passage today. Uh,
0: for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. All right. So here's a
1: footnote on, on that in the Jewish Annotated New Testament. The Jewish leaders are motivated not only by the political concerns, but also by the number of Jews that were deserting them. This formulation suggests that one could no longer be both a Jew and a follower of Jesus, which seems like the worst idea to have in the footnotes of the Jewish annotated New Testament, if you've been following anything that we've taught from session four, five, and six. But nevertheless, I digress. Now, they did put (laughs) Jew in quotations. So they did put... uh, this formulation suggests that one could no longer be a, quote, Jew and a follower of Jesus. This is the same resource, by the way, that has the article. The reason we've always recommended it, Brent, is it's in this resource in the back of their New Testament. They have the article on the word Aduai, which is that word that gets translated as Judean. So I find it truly ironic that their footnote somewhat disagrees. And I don't know if that's necessarily true. I think their article gives us lots of leeway to see it in different ways. but. um I think what's being said is exactly what you just insinuated, whether you meant to or not. The chief priests the chief priests are watching people desert the Judean worldview. Jews are deserting. That's what sparks the chief priests to not only go after Jesus, but also to go after that because they are watching people desert their party, their worldview, because of what's happening, which I find fascinating at this point in the Gospel of John. But they put out the hit on Lazarus in addition to to Jesus, which makes which makes total sense because the verse prior is they're not just going to see Jesus, now they're going to see Jesus and Lazarus. And the chief priests are like, My goodness, this is getting out of control. We need to kill everybody.
0: A <laughs> uh, slippery slope
1: solution. It, it certainly is. <laughs>
0: yep. So uh, so much for
1: Caiaphasis, you know, one man should die. Now Caiaphas is like, well, better than two men die than everybody else.
0: Yeah. Yeah, uh, the NET translates it, and and it is, it's just that same word for Judeans uh, in the Greek the whole time. Uh, in this particular case, the NET translates it, uh, the Jewish people from Jerusalem.
1: Okay, yep, sure. That would yeah be a part of the right party. It's just interesting the choices they make on translation, but yeah. Uh,
0: yep. Okay, well, that's a passage for today.
1: That That's it. It's a pretty good little chunk, a little discussion.
0: Pretty good. Oh, I did have one other thing that I thought was an interesting detail. So... Of course, the NIV translates this away. The the money was about a year's wages. Uh, it is literally three hundred denarii, uh, and denarii is apparently a silver coin, typically. Um, so, is it is there any sort of connection to three hundred? pieces of silver here and then the 30 pieces of silver that he gets later?
1: I wouldn't think a connection between the 30 and the 300. I do think it's a fantastic connection or question to ask about do 300 does, does 300 in in relation to currency show up anywhere in particular as a remes? um, that would be a possibility. Uh, denarii is that is tricky because it's denarii is, yeah, it's just a day's wage. It doesn't have like a, a Hebraic Old Testament parallel as far as value or makes it hard to remez those things unless numerical value is so particular that it, it's undeniably a connection.
0: And the, the NET footnote on this section is strangely um, interpretive, <laughs> but it, it talks about like, oh, since Judas couldn't get, you know, he couldn't. Which I don't. It doesn't make any sense because, like, they're just going to have money sitting around, and he's helping himself to it. Apparently, Uh, but the net is like, well, since he couldn't take any money from this situation, then he goes and betrays Jesus to get some money a different way. It's like, uh, I, it's not like, it's not like they had wow. no money, and this was the only money they would have. So I don't know. It's weird, but I just thought it was interesting that it's three hundred and thirty, which would be ten percent which I I like there's there's no indication as to how much Judas was taking but it seems like interesting 10% is the kind of like amount where you could Mm. maybe Mm. get away with it without anyone noticing how much is missing but that's I mean it's all all speculative but
1: it is a weird uh,
0: it's a weird move for the NET out of character. <laughs> I mean, those do happen more often than that, and I just don't mention it. So, <laughs> I, I am the uh, I am the filter for the NET footnotes for y'all. The NET uh, Brent Billings filter edition. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully filtering out to only the good stuff. Uh, <laughs> all right, well that does it for this episode. Uh, if you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at eibcb, and you can find more details about the show at bamonastepsup.com. So thanks for joining us on the Bamo podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.